The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The default may be that you have no idea that an algorithm analyzed your resume or that it looked up your past records in order to approve or deny you uh, access to you know, a rental application, right? In the, in the example of tenant screening. And if you have no idea that that happened, you have no recourse. And it turns out that these systems make mistakes all the time. They uh, find the wrong record and they say, well, we're not going to approve this person for this rental apartment because they have a criminal record and it turns out to be a completely different person. If you have no idea that that happened, then you have no way to appeal and you have no way to correct that. Even if, you know, there's no really thorough understanding, the idea that you're really going to understand the algorithm and what it's doing, maybe for the average person is not that likely, there is still value in knowing that you're sort of subject to an algorithmic system and, and hopefully some explanation of how it made the decision made. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for December 7th, 2022. Earlier this fall, the Biden administration released what it called a blueprint for an artificial intelligence bill of rights, a policy document that lays out a five-pillar strategy for how the United States intends to wrestle with and regulate the challenges arising from the increasingly common use of AI. In recent weeks, the European Union has been wrestling with its own AI regulation challenges, and is now on the verge of releasing its own similar strategy. For today's episode, I sat down with Alex Engler, a fellow fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution who has been closely tracking these policies. We talked about the challenges AI poses to policymakers, the strategy the United States is set to pursue, and how it is both different from and similar to the EU's approach. It's the Lawfare Podcast for December 7th, Regulating AI with Alex Engler. So Alex, let's start with what the Biden administration has done in the past few weeks. We saw them release what I think they've described, I think the official title is a blueprint for an artificial intelligence AI bill of rights. Tell us a little bit about the policy impetus behind this product and what exactly it is signaling in terms of how the United States is thinking about the challenges of AI. Yeah. So the broad context here is that despite having a growing uh, role of artificial intelligence policy in the US, no government up until this point, not the Obama administration and not the Trump administration, really gave a lot of credence and broad exposition to how AI can be harmful to civil rights and to consumer protections. 
And so we have National Science Foundation funding going into new labs for AI, and we have a new Commerce Council discussing how to improve commercial use of AI. And we have it, you know, it's involved in the Trade and Technology Council with the EU. Then we have these billions going to semiconductors. And this is, even despite all that, this is really the first time the federal government sat down and said, here are the meaningful algorithmic harms that can arise as these this tool emerges in really important areas of socioeconomic decision-making. Things like financial services access and healthcare provisioning and hiring and educational access. And that's really what this is first and foremost meant to solve. It is that broad contextualization of what these harms are and, and how they affect people. And then it follows that up with some efforts at creating a sort of comprehensive government response and some regulatory actions. So you said this was the first effort like this, but it, it's not technically the first, or at least there was a prior effort, as I recall, towards the end of the Trump administration, where they kind of brought out, I think through an OMB process, a kind of similar framing document. Although by my understanding, in part from your writing, a somewhat different approach. Tell us a little bit about how the Biden administration is conceiving of these harms and the extent to which it departs from or is different from the approach taken by the Trump administration. Is there an evolution in views here? Is there uh, different partisan perspectives or different other sort of ideological perspectives that enter into this issue set that's leading to a particular policy approach? Or is it simply a, a different type of document, maybe a little more specific or broader? Yeah, that's fair, right? So there was this Trump administration executive order maintaining American leadership in artificial intelligence that actually came out in 2019. And then after that, there was this very late OMB guidance that came out in December 2020. So really right before the shift to the Biden administration. And what that did is it did set some early principles. In fact, uh, had a different set of principles than the ones we're seeing in the AI Bill of Rights. Uh, and it asked federal agencies to document their current regulatory authority over AI. Um, and that, I think, actually could have been a useful exercise. The That executive order and another one from the late Trump administration were actually reasonably good approaches to AI governance. Unfortunately, largely agencies ignored those, partially, presumably because the transient administration, partially because um, they probably just had new priorities and there wasn't a lot of wasn't the White House was really holding their feet to the fire, you know, COVID was going on and everything else. And so uh, unfortunately, that really didn't get done. Um, only Health and Human Services really answered that first OMB directive. Um, their answer is actually quite thorough and useful. They document uh, quite a few laws that they have that are being affected by emerging uses of AI. They have information collections about how AI is changing genomic sequencing, for instance. So sort of useful, but largely, unfortunately, it was ignored. And the framing of that document also pretty much told agencies to take a relatively hands-off approach, even though it sort of vaguely said, yeah, okay, AI can have harms. It also explicitly encouraged them not to do very much about it. Uh, the AI Bill of Rights does not have that framing. It is much more explicit and comprehensive about how algorithms are affecting and in many cases worsening civil rights harms. So even just reading the two, you will certainly not have the same takeaway. And the other thing that the AI Bill of Rights does is it really is clearly encouraging policy and entrepreneurship, by which I mean encouraging agencies to take some of this into their own hands. And it lists 
at length, not only potential ways, you might see lots of uh, interventions, both from states and localities and from governments and from uh, nonprofits, um, but also a list of associated federal actions where the Biden administration is now really sort of pushing the envelope forward. And this includes things like, you know, guidance for AI hiring um, from the Equal Oppor- Employment Opportunity Commission. It includes a requirement from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that algorithms that determine credit access have to offer explanations to people they deny and more coming from health and human services on algorithmic healthcare and from the Department of Education on AI and educational technology. And so both there was a change in tone and also now we're seeing clear agency action on a lot of these issues that just wasn't there before. I want to get into some of those nitty-gritty policies, but I think it's useful to start with the five principles the blueprint lays out um, because they're kind of a useful framing mechanism. I'm going to try and bundle them a little bit to talk about them together just for the sake of efficiency. The first two principles strike me as kind of relating to each other. One is that you it provides a – or says one should have a right to safe and effective systems, basically a idea that the government part of the government's job is, I guess, to protect people from unsafe or ineffective AI systems or other sorts of algorithmic mechanisms. And then as a second principle, it lays out algorithmic discrimination protections, which strikes me as kind of a special iteration of that protective principle that specifically and expressly, they're supposed to be used in a way that's equitable and doesn't subject anyone to any discrimination of any inappropriate sort. Tell us a little bit about how the Biden administration and the people who authored this are conceiving of those two harms and scoping them and how they motivate some of the rest of the policy measures we're seeing. You know, it's interesting. They may be worth considering a little bit separately. And part of the reason why is that some AI principles kind of assume that AI works effectively. And I'm glad to see safe and effective systems in this list because they often don't. I think people really underestimate how frequently companies deploy commercial AI software that absolutely does not work. A good example is we saw people deploying COVID detection algorithms using thermal imagery, right? And and there's just absolutely no chance that that was working. It was just almost completely invented out of thin air. Um, And they're making totally false claims about what it could do. We see claims from companies that say they can use AI to proctor student testing to make sure that students aren't cheating as they take tests from home. Totally false pseudoscientific claims. And so the fact that there's sort of a recognition that the market is a little bit inundated with some of this AI hype and frankly, AI pseudoscience is useful and and I think actually different than the discrimination claims, which we hear about maybe a little more frequently. The algorithm discrimination protections in almost every area of commercial AI, we've seen some evidence of large-scale discriminatory impact. That's true in really influential papers about how hospitals expect Black people to need less healthcare and thus provide less healthcare than white people. Uh, We've seen it discriminatory uses of AI in in hiring, which are uh, sort of categorically biased against people with disabilities or people who present really in any way atypically. And in some ways, that algorithmic discrimination 
is almost a little easier for the government to handle because there are already some laws on the books about algorithm discrimination. Here we have an example where we need to iterate on how agencies actually tackle this problem and making sure they can enforce current law. Whereas some of the safe and effective challenges are, are maybe are different. It may actually come more from the Federal Trade Commission and enforcing its rules against false claims in advertising. So you end up almost with two pretty different problems and, and potentially two different solutions, at least under what's currently available to the federal government. That's really interesting. So to, to maybe phrase it slightly differently, or not slightly differently, to try and digest a little bit what you're saying, sounds like safe and effective systems is really thinking more about things in a kind of consumer protection lens, and presumably the kind of a tort lens potentially as well, uh, that protects consumers and others who are subjected to AI-related processes, while algorithmic discrimination is much more about not about the packaging or framing of AI products, but actually about the way they're implemented and designed to not accomplish certain negative ends, regardless of kind of like accuracy and advertising or framing things. Like yeah. That. And you can also imagine there are systems that have like large scale discrimination problems, but like work. So here's right. an unfortunate right, right, right. outcome, which is like, you might have a, a algorithmic system that is targeting higher interest rates to low-income people or African-Americans or Hispanic-Americans. And that is working from the perspective of the company, right? It's not broken. It's, it's making them more money, but it is also very implicitly discriminatory. And I think that happens more often than you think. And then there's a bunch of these examples where the systems just absolutely cannot do what companies are promising it to. That they're sort of just way, way overestimating the current state of AI, which has maybe not come quite as far as as you might think if you're just seeing stuff like GPT-3 and Dolly and these really fancy, amazing models on the internet. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's that's really useful distinction. Let me let me move to our next two principles here, which I'm also going to group together. Uh, but but we can maybe worth breaking them <laughs> apart and talking about them a little bit <laughs> because they both seem to relate to the idea of transparency. Essentially, one is data privacy about you know, the relationship inherently between AI and data, um, basically, and guaranteeing that, you know, being using AI products isn't going to subject individuals to abusive data practices and that you still have agency over your own data. And then similarly, with notice and explanation, it is about making people aware that they're being subjected to an AI-driven process or engaging with an AI system to some degree and kind of the outcomes and why it's being used in that way. Again, Talk to us and feel free to break them apart if, if it makes more sense to you. These sorts of transparency mechanisms and, and how they fit, why they're so important to an AI product, even though neither both are things that we're familiar with kind of from other areas, not necessarily something we think about strictly in the AI context. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, I think on the data privacy side, this is maybe the least commonly cited like AI principle of this list, it's a little unique to this list, um, but I do think it warrants inclusion. Other people have noted that the, I mean, data is inextricably linked to the use of AI, and AI is sort of inherently about surveillance. It's it's really hard to expand or build a new AI system without some level of of surveillance, and so it probably warrants mention here, even if most algorithmic interventions are seen as kind of happening at a different stage. It's more about the design and use of the algorithm and less about how the data is collected and how the data ended up there. But so, you know, it's sort of a recognition that these can't, despite the fact that we often think about them separately, they can't really be fully separated. 
unnoticed in explanation, this is really very obviously about how people interact with algorithm systems. The default may be that you have no idea that an algorithm analyzed your resume or that it looked up your past records in order to approve or deny you uh, access to you know, a rental application, right? In the, in the example of tenant screening. And if you have no idea that that happened, you have no recourse. And it turns out that these systems make mistakes all the time. They uh, find the wrong record and they say, well, we're not going to approve this person for this rental apartment because they have a criminal record. And it turns out to be a completely different person. If you have no idea that that happened, then you have no way to appeal and you have no way to correct that. And even if, you know, there's no really thorough understanding, the idea that you're really going to understand the algorithm and what it's doing, maybe for the average person is not that likely, there is still value in knowing that you're sort of subject to an algorithmic system and, and hopefully some explanation of how it made the decision made, partially so it can lead to the next principle about human alternatives and, and fallback. And that fifth principle, I think, is one of the more interesting ones. It's framed as alternative options. It's kind of the header the Biden administration puts in, but it really is about the human fallback, the idea that there needs to be, as they frame it, either an alternative to the AI-driven system uh, or decision-making kind of like process that's being laid out, or as some other, I guess, human means of remedying potential issues. How is that frame? Like, how has that made its way into this package? Because, in one way, depending on how strictly you, you interpret it, you know, it could undermine a lot of the efficiency of that AI systems can bring to businesses by requiring a human alternative that people could turn to. That itself can be very expensive. But is it thought more of as a corrective or as a true kind of parallel system? It's it's a really good point, and a lot of the AI principles that we've seen before this they're actually framed around the idea of like a human in the loop, which sort of suggests that there's a person involved in every algorithmic decision and that a human like checks in or maybe partially contributes to it. And this explicitly doesn't say that. It says human alternatives, consideration, and fallback. And I think alternative is probably the word to focus on or maybe maybe fallback. The idea that if something goes wrong, you can elevate it past the algorithmic system to a person or if you are convinced or have some evidence that the algorithm is not going to work for you, I think certainly people with disabilities face a lot of circumstances where algorithms and, and digital tools are not well built for them and not well uh, considered for their uh, uh, limitations or strengths. And in those circumstances, this is essentially saying there should be a clear path for you to request an alternative not necessarily that there is a human checking every decision, but that if you have a pretty good reason to expect it's not going to work for you, you can you can go elsewhere. And and I think that's a well-reasoned principle, I think, especially because what we're talking about here is really key uh, socioeconomic decisions, right? We're not talking about Netflix recommendations. We're really talking about decisions made by algorithms that fundamentally impact how you interact with the economy. And, and presumably your health. And then I think this is a pretty reasoned principle and, and one I would hope to see as a legal requirement eventually for, for some of these so that would require going significantly past this sort of regulatory guidance. So as we've already mentioned, this sort of five principle blueprint is a guidance document for a broad range of 
regulatory actions that the government is undertaking in a variety of ways, in part because AI, in my mind, doesn't fall very squarely under any one particular regulatory regime. Instead, it really is a tool of sorts that can be applied to all sorts of different issue areas and areas of human activity that fall under different existing regulatory regimes. Talk to us a little bit about the regulatory approach here. What are the big standout regulatory actions that are on this list, um, which is probably too comprehensive for us to go over, but but give us an example of one or two that you think really stand out as notable, and maybe what, what's missing from those lists? What's still being considered? What has been ruled out for good or bad reasons? What is the regulatory approach that is actually being driven forward by these principles? Yeah, there's good news and bad news here. The good news is that this is a smart and reasoned approach by the White House to what I'm and other people are calling a sectorally specific approach to AI governance. And it's because of exactly what you just said. There's the, the use of AI is too manifold in its many different applications across all of the economy to possibly set one set of rules that applies to all of it. The European Union is trying an approach that is a little more centralized, and it's incredibly hard to answer even basic definitions like what is AI when you're trying to address sort of its manifestations across every conceivable important decision it can make. And so this document is saying, we're not going to do that. We're going to have some high level principles, and then we're really going to look to federal agencies to drive forward the meaningful change. And there are a bunch of advantages of that approach. One is that you get, frankly, more reasoned policy that's driven not just sort of by a big central effort, but it's grounded in what stakeholders want. It's grounded in the domain expertise of the agencies. It's much more likely to consider both the human parts of a process and the algorithmic parts. There are very few policy problems that involve algorithms where if you fix the algorithms, everything would be great. Usually they're a a part of a much broader policy problem. And so all of this gets better in a sectoral approach when you have more specific rules. You know, one example I really like is how housing and urban development, along with a bunch of other federal agencies, is approaching property appraisal. And with property appraisal, this is how algorithms estimate how much land is worth, right? And that is a huge factor in American wealth and disparities in American wealth. And if you look at the very thorough plan, algorithms are an important part of this, but they are one part, right? It is it is set within a much broader, much more systemic approach to a key uh, socioeconomic challenge, which is making sure that appraisals are fair in, you know, between black and Latino and white neighborhoods, for instance, among other issues. So that's the advantage of the sectoral approach. And I think broadly, you'll get better guidance this way. And you'll get better guidance from EEOC and CFPB and HHS and so on and so on and so on. The downside is that if agencies don't want to do this or necessarily don't have the expertise yet, things can go quite a bit slower. We've seen very little from the Department of Education. Um, and that is not, I, do, I think that's really about staffing and capacity. They, they said they're starting some work on AI and educational tools, but it's a very, very slim office, maybe as few as just two or three really full-time people working on these issues. We've seen nothing on insurance and some of the other areas of 
uh, finance that can be quite important. And then the biggest oversight, which is definitely not about capacity, but is more about agency-driven interest, is law enforcement. There is almost nothing in this document that applies to law enforcement. In fact, there is an explicit exemption for law enforcement. And so if you have agencies that are interested, the takeaway, if you have agencies that are interested in these problems, they're probably going to do a pretty good job because they can set specific rules and work you know, within their domain to make some progress. And if the agencies don't want to do it, you're going to see huge holes where nothing happens. And that's unfortunately the downside uh, of this approach rather than, you know, passing a centralized piece of legislation. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you 
constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Well, that's a great transition into my next question, um, because you know, a notable kind of absence in some of the faction, a lot of the materials from around the blueprint, not from the blueprint itself, are some of those agencies that listeners and readers at Lawfare spend the most time thinking about and listening and talking about, like the Defense Department, like the Intelligence Community, State Department, uh, maybe although a little less intersection with AI there, and then law enforcement, of course, as you were mentioned. Tell us a little bit about how those groups are intersecting with this broader effort. Um, they're not generally regulatory agencies in the same way a lot of other federal agencies are, of course. DOJ is in a very you know unique, specific way and, and in a slightly more conventional way in certain areas, right? But criminal investigation, prosecution, its main bread and butter is a different beast, different type of regulation than kind of conventional regulation. And of course, state, defense department, intelligence community don't really regulate anything, or at least not many things. It's not their main functions. Um, but we have seen at least DOD and the intelligence community kind of come out with 
ethical principles guidelines, kind of similar principles documents in the last few years. Are those integrated with this process that's extending kind of otherwise government-wide, or is that kind of a separate track? And does that distinction to the extent it exists make sense? You know, it's almost completely separate, and I think that's great. There are so many distinct and diverse uses of algorithms that it's basically impossible to write anything that applies to all of them. And so the fact that they managed to write, the White House managed to write a pretty cohesive document just even around these sort of civil rights and consumer harms, I think is actually kind of impressive. It's pretty hard to do that. Uh, and so the fact that it excludes law enforcement is, I think, a bit of an issue because it falls into that like category of harms around uh, civil rights protection, especially how police are using tools like facial recognition, um, potentially how they're getting access to cell phones is sort of also related, really creating a lot of like modern forensic evidence with algorithms, maybe, maybe the category that warrants a lot of concern. And so I do think that that kind of belongs here, but there are whole areas of AI that, that don't. And while there is a lot of work going on in the Defense Department, there's a new chief digital and artificial intelligence officer, the CDAO, and that office has uh, sort of taken it a bunch of resources and they've kind of started working on things like how can you use AI in the battlefield, right? And sometimes the artificial intelligence can be very useful, but also it can just be wrong. And um, the Defense Department does not love things that are just wrong sometimes. And so you have to build new engineering approaches for what happens in those situations. And that work is, is clearly ongoing. And I don't want to say that there aren't agencies taking the promise and potential dangers of AI very seriously, but almost a uh, I would say almost a fundamentally completely separate effort, right? And and that is okay. It is worth drawing some clear lines rather than trying to tackle this as though AI is is one thing. I will also note, by the way, I think the State Department is going on a hiring spree of data scientists at the moment, actually. I'm not entirely sure what they're up to, but they clearly think that there is a non-trivial role for sort of expanded use of, of data science and AI over at State. So I'm sort of excited to find out what that's about. That's really interesting. So Alex, you, you already mentioned that the European Union is undertaking a similar effort, but taking a pretty different approach. I know you've done some work on this. Tell us a little bit about the way the EU is encountering and thinking about the challenges presented by AI and the regulatory or other kind of legal approach that it is pursuing. So the EU has a couple big pieces of digital legislation that are coming out. Some that I'm sure you've talked about on Lawfare, like the Digital Services Act, which is aimed at online platforms like Facebook and YouTube. Some like the Digital Markets Act, which is aimed at online retailers like Amazon. And, and the AI Act, though there are algorithms in those things, there is a different bill called the EU AI Act, which is really, really separate. It's really about it's closer to the AI Bill of Rights. It's a little bit broader. But one of the big categories is this kind of AI shoved into an important socioeconomic decision. It also covers some other stuff like AI and consumer products. Uh, if you build driverless cars or if you maybe driverless boats, this will probably also end up affecting those. But it does have a neat parallel to the AI Bill of Rights in that kind of hiring public benefits and public services, uh, financial access, educational access, it is sort of their approach 
and they're much more likely to pass this. I know it's easy to be skeptical of uh, legislation here in the US, but the EU is pretty far along and, and basically guaranteed to pass something. And what it's going to do, it's going to take a bunch of algorithms that fall into those categories I just mentioned. It's going to call them high risk. And then it's going to create a set of rules and standards um, for the use of those algorithms, including things like uh, the data must be unbiased and relatively accurate. And the models, algorithm models that are built on them should be uh, accurate themselves and robust and non-discriminatory and that they should inform people that they're being uh, analyzed by an algorithm and when possible offer explanations and have some appeal mechanism and so on and so forth. Now, the good news for the EU is that they kind of get to solve all their problems at once. They're passing one big piece of legislation. It will be comprehensive and it will cover all of these areas that people who have been advocating for stronger civil rights protections have been worried about. The downside, well, I shouldn't say all of them, but it'll cover a lot of them at once. The downside is it requires writing down all of this at once, rather than getting that sort of sectorally agency by agency approach where you get really specific rules and a specific approach. Whatever you write down in the UAI Act has to apply both to algorithmic hiring and the AI systems that you might install into an elevator. And that, as it turns out, is a real challenge. And the EU is, is still struggling with it right now. And, you know, they're over a year into this process and they don't yet have a totally firm definition of AI, right, written down. So that is a meaningful challenge. And I think one that if you look at the AI Bill of Rights is explicitly meant to sidestep. There is no firm legal definition of almost any of this in there because the U.S., you know, the White House decided, I think correctly, we don't really care about the type of algorithm. We'll let agencies decide what's important. Sometimes it's going to be really simple stuff, like just a set of, you know, algorithmic if-else statements and, and maybe even human set rules. And other times it might be really complicated deep learning algorithms that are doing all sorts of crazy convolution and, and whatever. And the fact that they don't have to define AI means they don't have to worry about that. They can leave it up to agencies to decide what is important within their policy area. And unfortunately, because of the approach they use, they kind of have to work this out now. So the good news, they'll have a comprehensive law. The bad news, they have to set these really relatively consistent standards to affect this incredibly diverse range of applications. So what are the trade-offs then for the EU in that sort of definition drawing exercise? Yeah, I guess the trade-offs of the contrary kind of decentralized U.S. approach. You know, obviously you have a can have a little more tailored approach in the U.S. system, but I guess as you've already noted, there's kind of this risk of disparate approaches across different policy areas, right? Because you don't have a unified policy drive, although you have the blueprint and an effort to do that, but there's no strict legal definition or authority that extends across all these domains. Instead, you're using a bunch of parallel authorities. Has there been a real active debate in among policy folks as to what the merits and downsides of the two different approaches are and, and what we're losing out by not pursuing a more unified regulatory approach and vice versa for the EU? Yeah, I, th I think the EU side is easier to explain. They have 27 member states and they need to set consistent central rules. They don't really have 
the same consistency with central regulators that they can kick this problem to. If they don't set the rules consistently, then the people in charge of enforcing it may do it very, very differently. So because they have, they're trying to standardize the approach of the many regulators across the member states to maintain the idea of a single market, they feel like they have to approach it this way. And I think there's some truth to that. The, the reason you're seeing the bill designs like this is because otherwise you don't have consistent rules across the single market and then you really don't have a single market anymore. If they had strong central regulators for this stuff, I think it would be a little less likely that you saw this approach. And so the US, of course, we have different factors contributing to our approach. One is that we have strong central regulators, right? And then more importantly is that we're very unlikely to see legislation <laughs> that expands regulatory capacity right now. You know, we've been struggling to pass a comprehensive data privacy law for quite a long time. And I think most people do not expect a you know, systemic or comprehensive approach to algorithmic harms to supersede that. Uh, so it's a little bit the reality of where Congress's priorities are and the state of data privacy legislation as well as the fact that our regulators can, in fact, do more than, certainly more than nothing on their own, that there are some real limitations in what they can do. You know, if you want to inspect an algorithm, you actually need quite a lot of capacity. You need to be, you might need an administrative subpoena capacity to go get the data and code and the models. You might need actual in-house expertise to do that analysis and maybe an environment to securely and privately store and analyze the data it's actually, unfortunately, not clear a lot of agencies have that capacity right now. So while the agency-led approach is good, they may also run into a whole lot of sort of technical and regulatory barriers in their ability to really set and enforce thorough laws. So, you know, honestly, the U.S. and the EU are both facing some problems here, though they are quite different in their form. Let's take a step back across the Atlantic, back to the United States, and talk about the kind of metastructure outside of the Biden administration now. Because the Biden administration seems to have an approach for engaging these. We've seen this blueprint. Presumably, these are going to stay on the books and are part of an ongoing kind of policy process of the sort we're kind of familiar with, driven by Domestic Policy Council or other entities in the White House, coordinating with different agencies, trying to make progress on these things. And that's a very familiar exercise for, for folks who've worked in kind of executive branch driven, particularly White House driven policy initiatives. But of course, those exist against a very different political backdrop. One we already know is changing from the blueprint here, of course, uh, because the political control of the House of Representatives is switching by very narrow margin to the Republican Party from the Democratic Party. And there may be more changes coming in 2024, either to the White House or to Congress. Are there big differences in perspective for from how the two parties or groups within one or both parties approach this sort of regulatory questions, complex reg regulatory questions that are entailed in dealing with AI? You know, we saw the Trump administration take a different approach somewhat, but in some ways it sounded more just like a preliminary, more early stage effort. Are there other underlying ideological or policy differences that might lead to substantial changes in tack for the United States down the road if there were some sort of political change? 
I think the difference between the Trump and the Biden administration is probably pretty profound at maybe even less so at the top level, you know, at the high level guidance documents, but at the individual, you know, political appointments and who is coming in to do this work. You know, the civil rights groups and and advocacy groups that want to see change I think have found a much more receptive audience in this uh, batch of political appointees. And if you looked at the launch event for uh, the blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights, you saw EEOC chairwoman Charlotte Burroughs, you saw uh, Secretary of Education Michael uh, Miguel Cardona, you saw Rohit Chopra, the Director of Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and Secretary Becerra of HHS, of Health and Human Services. And they were there, one, because, you know, this is a big White House announcement and presumably they got asked to, but I don't, you know, I think it also reflects that they are getting a lot of pressure from their communities and invested civil society groups to do something about how algorithms are creating problems. And, you know, the fact that the bias issues especially have been so prominent, I think the principles are more Diverse. They're not just about algorithmic bias and discrimination, but the bias and discrimination issues have been very, very prominent, which has led to quite a bit of a vocal criticism of these algorithms and demands for government action. And I don't think it would surprise anyone that that has a more profound effect on the Democratic Party, right? Just given what its constituency is. So, so I think maybe even if the high level documents are, there is some clear overlap. We're seeing a much more intentional approach to updating sort of the U.S. regulatory approach in the weeds to the proliferation of algorithms. And I think that's probably more important than like the fact that there's a, you know, there is a DPC, OSTP, uh, sorry, Domestic Policy Council and Office of Science and Technology Policy, you know, uh, working group that's that's helping coordinate this. And that's important. But I actually really expect that a, a lot of this going forward is going to be incremental changes by agencies as demanded by their constituencies. As somebody who watches these issues, what do you think we should be looking for to keep our kind of thumb on the pulse of the direction of these regulatory directions? Where do you expect to see the biggest regulatory action or more kind of iterations of the broader strategic approach that we see laid out in this blueprint document? You know, where are we in the broader process toward tackling this issue set that we can see on the horizon and and what path should we be expecting to go there? And what markers, I guess, should we be looking for if to know that the Biden administration is going off course? So some agencies have started earlier than others. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, deserves credit for having started a lot of this work substantially before the AI Bill of Rights, at least by mid last year. And so they have already issued guidance on how AI systems in hiring should perform relative to the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that guidance is actually quite good and really is the agency's interpretation of how an existing law applies to a very large, very common type of system, which is these systems that uh, filter out you know, who gets a job or maybe analyzes your resume or analyzes your cover letter, or even in some cases, maybe give an automated interview that that falls into the sort of pseudoscientific category I talked about earlier. 
And so for an agency that's a little farther along, we're sort of going to see where the rubber hits the road. It's about time that you might expect complaints to come in. EEOC can start investigations based on complaints. And so it's possible that you will see a series of complaints come in about people who are experiencing AI hiring systems that are not accessible and that they do feel are discriminated against them. And then that could lead to actual enforcement actions. It's also possible that we won't. And that split, whether or not what is happening now is enough, that people just with a vague understanding of what these laws are and just with their limited insight into how an AI system is affecting them, is that going to be enough for them to follow up with agencies and then take advantage of either agency action or potentially uh, civil liability? It's really not clear. We have not seen a lot of litigation. We've not seen a lot of concrete enforcement actions. I should say the exception here is, is to some extent the the Federal Trade Commission, who which, which has done more here or on related issues uh, around data privacy. So EOC is an interesting place to watch. We've seen some promises from the Department of Education on building out really thorough guidance around AI in, uh, in K-12 and how it's used in uh, student learning. We've seen promises from Health and Human Services to set some rules around healthcare provisioning, which affects many, many millions of people. There's a lot of models running in healthcare that uh, help affect how everybody receives healthcare that uh, end up being quite important. And I think we're a little earlier on those, but one, sort of seeing how those documents come out. And then two, I think the, the maybe more key, more unanswered question is after those come out, are we going to see meaningful enforcement? Is it going to enable civil liability? Will it put pressure on companies to spend more time making safe, responsible, unbiased, and transparent AI systems? Uh, still unanswered. And I think it's, you know, probably going to be the case that in some in some cases these structural limits on agencies are going to be pretty significant but others maybe not there's a lot of creative thinking about how to apply current law to reach some of these ends well it is an issue space i think we all will be watching moving forward as ai makes its way into more and more corners of our work and our lives but we are unfortunately out of time for today alex engler thank you so much for joining us here today on the lawfare podcast thanks pleasure to be here The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Also, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues. And consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell and our audio engineer was Ian and Wright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.